are live for some reason, um, mostly because Caleb insisted we have content more often. So, and since we're not editing anyways, uh, I am Dr. Tim, but a narco-Catholic. I oh my am God, what can I, <laughs> I can hear myself. That's obnoxious. Well, you're not echoing on my end. If that is any consolation right. to you. I was being dumb. I fixed it. Okay. Okay, good. <laughs> this is Bulgakov. How you doing, Bulg? Start. I'm good. I'm great. Uh, you will notice I, if anyone has been trying, if anyone has been noticed, I am a little inactive on Twitter because um, Elon nuked me, but I will not get into this. I have already gone on a rant on Discord, so. It was an focus, act of mercy. We will focus on, yeah, it, indeed it was, indeed it was. Elon was saving me from myself and my addiction to X, which <laughs> sounds awful, sounds worse than a Twitter addiction. So. We will focus on better things, such as trying to get through Marathon. Right. So last time, this is this is probably by like a factor of five or ten, the fastest our, our turnaround for a new episode for this is going to be. <laughs> and so there were was, delays, even even yes, this fast. We were, we were going to do it earlier, except uh, you you fell asleep. I got yes. sick. It was yeah. So we're we're <laughs> actually we might be getting better at this. We might finish the book before. Uh, 2024? No, probably not. No, we might no. finish it in the next, like, within 12 we months from now. We might finish it before 2025, which I think is is the goal. I think that is extremely likely. I'd be shocked if we were still doing this in 2025. Well, you never know what might happen. That's a good point. <laughs> so last time we started Chapter 4 of uh, Jacques Maritain's The Degrees of Knowledge. This is Knowledge of Sensible Nature. We went about an hour and a half or so, got through a little over half the chapter, decided we didn't want to be on for three hours got to something that required a little bit more study by both of us. Mm -hmm. um, and so we said we'd take a break and come back to it, especially since we wouldn't have, have to read a lot more. So uh, here we are two weeks later. We're going to finish up Chapter 4. Uh, Bulge, you want to sort of catch us up on where we where we left off and what uh, what had us sort of flummoxed that caused us to, to call it early? All right. So um, uh, we are on a discussion of what is real space. Real is in big quotation marks. I believe Maritan does actually use quotation marks for the entirety of a text. Yeah, there is no word clearer than the word reality in quotes, which almost sounds like a sarcastic comment when you put it in quotes. Uh, and as you can imagine, a di discussion in of what is real space quickly devolves into questions of abstract mathematics, uh, physics, and philosophy, which, as we, we, as you, dear viewer, will find out, is the are the main three perspectives he considers in this part. And it gets complicated because he has to consider each of them and then also define what is real for each of them and then compare which one um, is more privileged or if anyone is more privileged or what their perspectives are actually addressing because the physicist might make an ontology out of his perspective and so might the mathematician. And that gets complicated. So we decided, especially because I have, I don't know about Ayn, but I certainly have no background in mathematics except what is needed for economics. So basic calculus and probability and statistics. So we decided to um, leave it off for a bit in study, and that's what we've done. And I hope that uh, the results speak for themselves as the discussion progresses. I'm confident I will understand it better than I would have two weeks ago. I don't know if we'll be able to convey that. 
a little bit more background. So in this chapter, one of the things that, that Maritain goes into very deeply is what he calls the new physics. As he's writing in the first mm -hmm. half of the 20th century, we have the, the discovery of Einstein's relativity theory, and at the same time, the, the rise of, of uh, various quantum theories, which um, kind of upturn a lot of the understanding of the physical world with some very new ideas and some uh, very strange ontologies associated with them. So he's trying to, a little bit at this point, discuss those a little bit and understand them pro the way a philosopher properly should understand what these physical things, uh, physical theories mean. And this leads him to his digression on real space, mm -hmm. uh, because in Einstein's general theory of relativity, uh, there's this idea that space-time, whatever the hell that means, is <laughs> curved. He gets into space-time, which I think you will have a lot more comments than I do, certainly. <laughs> I just I just said, hmm, interesting, and <laughs> then moved on. But um, And I think he'll get into this discussion a little bit more later, because you sort of have you have the the physicists coming up with these ideas and they sort of build a a uh, what will be a philosophy of nature out of these ideas mm -hmm. and they sort of do things a little bit backwards you end up with some very strange ideas about how the world works that are very prevalent today so he's really at this point you know at this point 70 80 90 years ago really trying to understand concretely okay what what are the, what is the physics actually telling us and what is real space what how does it make sense to talk about real space being curved Mm -hmm. um, and as you mentioned, he's going to address this from mathematical, physical, and, and philosophical perspectives. Yes. It's also, it's not that important to know, but it might be interesting for the viewer. The book was published in 1938, so before the Second World War really kicked off and before um, the atomic bombings in Japan. So that's just some background for why he, you will not find uh if he was writing in 1940, in 1948, for example, 10 years later, you will probably find some comment on that and uh, the speculation about that then uh, generated in the general public, I think. And I think we mentioned it last time, but as an aside, he's he's writing in the 1930s. Um, I'm trying to, I, I need to get a date for general theory of relativity, uh, but it is it is new at 19, that point. Yes, it's early, it's either late, uh, 1910s, if I remember correctly, or early 1920s, correct? So that so uh, special relativity was. Let's see, hold on. Um, okay, so originally 1915 for general relativity, so earlier right. than I thought. Uh, but quantum theory, and I think he makes some references to. You know, Einstein is still a, a, a known public speaker at this point. Um, people like Schrödinger and Heisenberg are doing the work to develop quantum theory. Mm -hmm. um, so this is this is. Uh, very much, they're very much. Um, it's very much contemporaneous to him writing this. So he is, um, for someone that is doing theology and metaphysics and philosophy, he is very much aware and conversant in what is the cutting edge of scientific theory. So I'm, I'm always very impressed by, by the breadth of his knowledge. And again, you know, a a Thomas working now would have to really dive in deep to have the knowledge of these fields that Maritain did when they were cutting edge. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that always just sort of amazes me. Yes, very much so. He does, in fact, name drop a few people like, uh, you know, we would mention someone like Stephen Hawking, um, like Niels Bohr. He sort of mentions, it's very funny seeing these things from the past where he talks mm -hmm. about Niels Bohr like a few years ago uh, now, I guess, since Hawking did die. But uh, we would mention Stephen Hawking as just, you know, the sky 
who right. uh, who is somewhat important to his field, I guess, since I'm I'm a layman in this area. But uh, he name drops it as a just sort of like you know he said this or he thought yeah, this or whatever. I, I attended one of his symposia in Bayern yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, shall we begin or any yes, more please. preliminary comments? All right, I think that's good. Dive into it. So uh, I'm going to go by my notes for especially for this discussion, which I desperately needed. Uh, so. It, we begin uh, the digression on real space with there is no word clearer than the word reality. It signifies that which is. However, there are many different ways that people interpret this word. The word real has not the same meaning for the philosopher, for the mathematician, and for the physicist. If we are aware from the outset of this diversity, the question here posed is nothing more than a nest of equivocations. The question being posed, of course, is what is real space? And just this is just my note. He is going to call the mathematician the geometrician for most of this text. So if I switch words and you feel confused, please don't. Just substitute the word mathematician. So now he starts talking about the three different meanings. For the geometrician, a space is real when it is capable of mathematical existence. That is to say, when it implies no internal contradiction and duly corresponds to the mathematical notions of space. That is, duly constitutes a system of objects of, of thought verifying the axioms of a geometry. Any comments before I move on for the physicist's definition? I think that'll, uh, not for right now, because th- what we'll see is the two end up getting a little uh, intertwined very easily. Yes, especially the new physics. He has some comments on that. For the physicist, a space is real when the geometry to which it corresponds permits the construction of a physical mathematical universe in which all of our pointer readings are explained and which at the same time symbolizes physical phenomena in a coherent and complete fashion. The physicist is only concerned with interpreting the measurements he gathers from nature into a synthesis in which geometry and physics are amalgamated as much as possible. So the real space for physics has changed in the past and might change further in the future. Shall I get into the definition for the philosopher? I have quite many few notes in it, so it would take a little while. I'm I'm tempted to go off on a tangent about uh, Russell and Whitehead and and <laughs> axiomatic mathematics. Um, suffice I'll to try say, to rein you in if you go too far. So please. go ahead. So there was a, a movement. God, when was when was Principia Mathematica? 1920s, could, I believe. I can check for you while you talk. I'm on it. Uh, 19 Polish in 1910 again. Okay, so this is what. Oh, so this is earlier, earlier than I thought. Yeah. Um, so this was Alfred Whitehead and. Uh, mathematician slash philosopher Bertrand Russell. And sort of the, the goal of their work, this is Principia Mathematica, and, and a big goal of the early 20th century of mathematics was to try and prove all of mathematics self-consistently as they start with a bare minimum set of axioms and then sort of discover arithmetic, geometry, algebra, all, all of number theory without having to make any any reference to the outside world. So you know, you set your very, very simple axioms of whatever their their primitive set was, set theory or whatever it is, and then try and build everything out of that. 
and this is very much in line with with uh, Maritain's definition of, of of real for a for a mathematician or a geometrician. If it's if you can make it self consistent, if you can have a self consistent, self contained system that contains no contradictions, that's real for a mathematician. Um, I'm trying to think who it was. Uh, Girdle came along probably yes, 10, 15 you... years later, and and mm -hmm. famously proved that that the the project of of Whitehead and Russell was doomed to failure because you can't pr um, any system that's as complicated I think is like basic algebra can't be proved to be self consistently true. There will always be statements that are not that are that cannot be proven true or false within the system. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of kind of kills that aspect of uh, of mathematical theory, but physicists and physics in general takes on a lot of this axiomatic mantle. Is okay. We we have our set of axioms, whether they're you know whatever they are. We can and they actually will relate them to experiment. But there's this set of rules, and we write down equations. And if the equations are self consistent, that becomes what's real. So mm -hmm. what's real for a physicist is okay. I write down a system of equations. That system of equations is internally self consistent. It has no contradictions. And when I try and measure something, the measurement is the same as what would be predicted by those equations. Yeah, the world is explained, which he puts in big quotation marks in the text, by um, the space constructed by the physicist. And I right. highlighted uh, that this can change, but the physicist is not very wedded to whatever this, well, well, maybe psychologically he is, but uh, physics as a field is not very wedded to whether a space is real or not. Uh, it has changed in the past and might change in the future, as Maritan highlights. Now it's Euclid, non-Euclidean spherical, I believe, are the ones he, he says were in vogue at the time. Sorry, mm -hmm. elliptical and spherical, not which are non-Euclidean, I suppose, but right. let's be a bit more specific. Uh, but it might change in the future. There's no saying it's anything that can better explain Pointer readings and pointer readings might get more complicated in the future, as uh, you know they got throughout history. Yeah, and, and that that's for the for the physicist as physicist, Meriton says that's all that's all they really care about is mm -hmm. does d does this does the ontology that is that you associate with the equations because the the for the physicist the for the for the modern physicist this the physico mathematical physicist as Meriton would call him probably. Um, the equations are the real thing. Those yeah. equations you can interpret as a non-Euclidean space, and if that if those equations predict reality correctly, then the non-Euclidean space is as good an explanation for reality as any because it because the equations are right. Mm -hmm. So, any more comments, or shall I let, move let's, on? Let's let's move on. To, let's move on to the the real real, the philosopher's real. All right, the philosopher's real. So. I this is three paragraphs here that I've quoted in my notes, so feel free to stop me at any one of them. For the philosopher, which is for us, for Maritan, the problem presents itself neither from the point of view of the physicist nor from that of the mathematician. For us, it is a question of knowing what is real space in the philosophical sense of the word. That is to say, in the sense that real entity is opposed to an entity of reason and designates an object of thought capable of extramental existence, surely not indeed according to the mode in which it exists in thought, but according to the ensemble of objective characteristics themselves which integrate its notion or definition. That was paragraph one. I'm going to start paragraph two to try and clear that up a little. We can say that a mathematical entity is real in the philosophical sense of the word 
when it can exist outside outside the mind, not doubtless under the conditions proper to mathematical abstraction, but insofar as, as its definition reveals in a pure state or according to its ideal perfection such or such characteristics pertaining to the accidental quantity which exist or can exist in the world of bodies. Although there is in nature no point without extension or line without thickness, nor any abstract number, yet point, line, and whole number are real beings. In order to be thus an ans real, which is just Latin for real existent, such an entity does not cease to be mathematical, though it cannot have actual and sensible existence except by losing its mathematical purity. So before I move on, I can explain that a little. Basically, um, a number, you will never encounter the number one purely. You will encounter the number one in things, in uh, creatures, in objects that you encounter in your life. You will not encounter it purely. You will also encounter a line, but you will not encounter a line without thickness or a point without extension. But you will encounter points and lines in your life. That's what he means by capable of extra mental existence, uh, not and not under the conditions proper to mathematical abstraction, which would be, you know, devoid of all these other uh, conditions that uh, that exist in the world, be abstracted from the world. Any comment before I go on to, to paragraph three? I'll just add on to that a little bit. I think another good example is is geometric shapes. So so circle, circle is a is a is he would call circle real in the philosophical sense because a circle can exist in the real world as a property of a circular thing, mm -hmm. right? If you if you I've had pizza recently, so it's on my brain. A mm -hmm. pizza, you know, a, a pizza has a has a has a property because it has it it has it is a real thing. Pizza, the pizza itself is real. It has properties. One of those is its shape and its extension. That shape is circular. So it is, you know, we, we can recognize circle in the shape of that pizza. Is it a perfect circle? No. Is it a, is the geometric object that is circle? No. That circle can't exist by itself in that mathematically pure, perfect state mm -hmm. outside of as exists in our mind. But it can exist as a property of real things. That's, that's why we know circle exists to begin with, is we can abstract that mathematical entity from real things that are circular. You know, we, we can know about numbers because we can abstract several things and say, okay, how many are there? We can make that abstraction from, I have set, the, set these seven distinct apples to the number of apples I have just being a, a number in its pure form. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah. those things, I, I think earlier in the chapter, he calls those Praetor real, is these, yes. these mathematical things that, that can exist, but not of themselves. They can exist out of the mind in other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he will, he will bring up the word Praetor real in this paragraph, so don't you worry. Let us add that though Euclidean, Riemannian, if that's how you pronounce it, etc., geometrical entities are translatable from one system to another, and that consequently all these geometries are equally true, they cannot, however, be equally real in the philosophical sense of the word. The straight line of an elliptical plane, for example, and the figure which corresponds to it in a Euclidean model are not different expressions of the same thing. In the order of the mathematical praetor real, there is no other thing than the object of thought itself constructed according to such or such a system of axioms. So it's a purely formal object of thought. So it can't, it's not different expressions for the same thing. A different expression is a different object in the praetor real. 
They are intrinsically different entities belonging to intrinsically different worlds. And from one of these worlds to the other, they correspond analogically. They're not univocal, they're only analogous. To affirm the reality of one space is therefore not to affirm at the same time the reality of all the others, but their unreality. No entity of these latter figures in the former. Any comment before I move on to the sure. ways of knowing real space? So um, I, I don't remember when this when this proof would have been, but that one of the sort of um, big mathematical accomplishments was showing that whether it's a Euclidean space or Riemannian space, Einstein's uh, space time, whatever it is, is you can make mathematical translations between them. So you could anything you could describe in one of these spaces, you could describe in the other. So we can, um, for the application of general relativity, we could describe general relativity with a non-Euclidean geometry and things work out really nicely and everything sort of falls in these weird curve things like you expect. Or you could, you could also write down the equations of general relativity and describe it completely with the Euclidean space. The equations would look different. They would have slightly different form, but they would make all the exact same predictions. We can we can mm -hmm. translate from one to the other. So they all, the from the the physics perspective, and the, again, the the physics and the math perspective very much get blurred by modern physics. From the physics perspective, there's this sort of in, this sense of which doesn't matter which one I use. One of them is more convenient for solving equations. One of them sort of intuitively feels a little bit better and and is a little bit cleaner to write down. I'll use that one, and that's the one that I will base my ontology on. But they're all equivalent in terms of they make the same predictions. So who really cares? Um, as as uh, Maritain points out, for the philosopher, for the one that actually cares about what the real world is, those things are still different. Whether or not space time is curved and things will fall like along those contours, or there's just forces that are causing them to move the exact same way they would if it was curved, there's still a difference between what those two things are. And Not can... only that, I would say that his point also extends to a mathematician, because for a mathematician, though he's not considering the ontology of things, he is considering a purely formal object, and therefore a different expression that can translate into another is not the same thing. It is only analogous, I think, which I think is actually an important yes. point, that it, mathematics is purely formal. It is abstract, and therefore one expression is a, and one expression compared to another, is a different object. Every expression is an object of itself. It can't be the same if they're different expressions. Yes. Which is an interesting point, which I hadn't thought about before. And it's funny that the physicists will, be, I mean, doing physics, you'd be surprised that they would lose the material, but they very much lose the material and just adopt the formal. They, they forget that there is a thing and they, just, and they let it be formal, despite the fact that their object of study is the material. Yes, indeed. So, do I move on or any more comments on this? Keep I didn't going. You a bit. All right. You're good. So, in our search for a criterion, that is a criterion for deciding which space is real, two ways, and two ways only, lie open. We may either analyze the genesis of the notions in order to see if the entity in question, without involving any internal contradiction or incompossibility in its constitutive notes, in which case it would have no mathematical existence, does not imply a condition incompossible with existence outside the mind. Thus, a logical entity, such as a predicate or copula, is certainly not intrinsically contradictory, but it would be a contradiction to suppose it existing outside the mind. So, for example, the predicate tall, there is no such thing as tallness. Of uh, a predicate hairy, there is no such thing as hairiness. There is only this object 
this person, this thing is hairy. Or we may consider a condition, a condition to which the philosopher knows that the reality of mathematical entities is subject. He knows that for these entities to exist, to exist outside the mind means to exist with sensible existence, and that whatever cannot be constructed constructed in imaginative intuition, which represents freely in any pure fashion whatever belongs to quantity, has, a fortiori, no possibility of being posited in sensible existence. This condition is direct constructability in intuition. So the two conditions are um, no internal contradiction, basically, uh, and does not imply or and does not imply contradiction with the outside, with the extra mental world. And the second one, the second criterion, is uh, is directly constructible in intuition, which is how we we uh, organize this, our sensible experiences, I suppose. Any comment on that? Um, just that the it's because we can't because he, he doesn't want to just rely on the physics. We have to say, okay, what can we philosophically show to be real? And following Aquinas, the the um, there's nothing in the mind that is not first in the senses. We have to be able to to intuit or physically understand these things directly, not not in the sense of mathematical physics, but we have to we have to have it be able to construct it in an intuition to consider it real because that's our sense experience. Our intuition comes from our sense experience of the world. All right. Now, among the systems of geometrical entities that are called Euclidean, Riemannian, Riemannian. Um, etc. Spaces. Only tridimensional Euclidean space is directly constructible in intuition. It is only by the intermediary of this space that others can satisfy the condition positive. To represent as natural to the thinking subject another geometry than that of Euclid, it is necessary to imagine a universe which is itself a being of reason as chimerical as an animal rationale alatum, as a winged rational animal. He does by that I want to be careful because I interpreted it very weirdly as first saying that he thought that the notion of a winged rational animal was internally contradictory. No, he is only saying that uh, a winged rational animal in our world would be a chimera. It could not just there is no such creature, therefore you would have to mix, you know, a man and a bird or something like that. You'd have to make a chimera, such as a harpy or a, a sphinx. Uh he's not saying that it is directly you know, a, a contradiction of reality. But he, uh, I think he has some other comments on that in the page itself outside of my notes. But uh, he, which he, one of them is, uh, if I remember correctly, he gets the example, I believe Eddington makes this uh, this example that, uh, you know, if you just want to imagine your the world as spherical, just look at a doorknob, uh, which has a reflection. So a shiny doorknob, which reflects images and imagine yourself, uh, as moving through that space instead of the real one. And then uh, he, uh, if I remember correctly, Marathon sort of jokes that, uh, you know, you can only do that because you have a real Euclidean space through which you move, and that the doorknob itself is, in a, is a, a Euclidean object in a Euclidean space. And this, this sort of gets to the crux of his point, is the way we the, that anyone invented or understood or came up with non-Euclidean spaces was by always making reference to Euclidean spaces. Mm -hmm. That it like like I think last time we gave the example of of the of the sphere world where you're on the surface of a sphere and the geometry is all kind of messed up. The only way you can make sense of that, that so as a reminder, it's you, you can imagine like okay if I if I'm in a, a 2D world, a flat world, it's like a big big plane, 
how is that different than if the whole thing was was wrapped around as actually the surface of a ball? And the, you've noticed one, one, those would be different geometries. One would be Euclidean, the flat plane would be Euclidean, the surface of the sphere would be non-Euclidean. But the way we make sense of or understand the surface of the sphere is by being able to be in a three-dimensional world and see, okay, this is how things would move around on the surface of the ball. So I have to, I have to know Euclidean space and understand Euclidean space for, first and, and constantly make reference to it to make sense of non-Euclidean spaces. Mm-hmm. He also makes reference to another point. And this is, I think, getting a little abstract because I would, I would mm-hmm. argue that... Um, <laughs> So again, with the tangents, people might have heard when you when you get into into even more modern physics, like the, of the last 30, 40, 50 years, and people start talking about things like string theory and trying to explain quantum gravity and all that, and they start talking about extra spatial dimensions. So instead of being in a three dimensional spatial world, we're in a twenty seven dimensional spatial world, or what you know, whatever number it is. There's a bunch of different theories, a bunch of different numbers. I would argue this falls into the same sort of thing Maritain's talking about. Is okay? Is, is are those extra dimensions real? And while for the the physicists they would be real, for the philosopher, no. The only way we understand a, what a fourth spatial dimension looks like is by understanding what our three dimensional spatial world looks like. Yeah, so, so much we, so, so that the only way to directly visualize four dimensional space is to imagine only looking at three dimensions of it, and then switching one dimension for the extra one every now and then. Exactly. So, but the same logic that spa- mm-hmm. space is not only Euclidean; it's Euclidean and three dimensional. There, there are there can't be other dimensions because we only understand those. That those are not directly constructible in, in intuition. Um, but related to that, sorry, again with the tangents. It's fine, go an, ahead. An, another one of the things that, that, that gets that was shown around this time with the geometry, I mentioned the example of the of the surface of a sphere, right? So that's a, that's a two-dimensional space that we can understand by looking at it from a three-dimensional Euclidean space, right? Is that clear? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the same <laughs> idea can work in higher dimensions too. So if you have a three-dimensional non-Euclidean space, you could understand that in a Euclidean space of higher dimension. I think it has to be six dimensions. He mentions at some point what the number is. But you can construct these higher dimensional Euclidean spaces and use that to make sense of non-Euclidean spaces. Mm. So even even then, the non-Euclidean space, we understand with reference to a still fictitious but but flat Euclidean space. Yeah, it doesn't. It actually shows that uh, the Euclidean space itself, tridimensional. He makes a he makes a point of saying that it. That the real Euclidean space, or the only space that satisfies all of these, uh, his two criterion, is tr- the tri-dimension Euclidean space. But mm-hmm. even then, the fact that we construct, uh, you know, additional uh, beings of reason, ans, uh, what is it, ans rationales, I think, mm-hmm. uh, for uh, to understand higher dimension non-Euclidean spaces, is to just, you know, construct like what free, free other dimensions or free other beings of reason and add them on to the Euclidean space. Kind of shows that our that this really does satisfy the the condition of intuition and sen- an imagining of sensible existence. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's see. Uh, Non-Euclidean geometries presuppose notions of Euclidean geometries, not indeed in their own structure and their own logical development, but as the foundation of the logical coherence of the entities they may construct and as the psychological basis of conceptualization. However, the philosopher must distinguish geometric real space from physical real space. We can designate this space precisely as filled with physical existences, that is, physical space, and actions, and composed by the properties of bodies, no longer geometric, but physical, their activity and their causality into a network of tensions or of heterogeneous qualitative intensities. 
It is a qualified space, and the determinations that it admits are due to that which is in space and to that which fills it. Thus, the philosopher distinguished and distinguishes, and it is a classical distinction, physical space from geometrical space, and can foresee that understood in this sense as physical space, real space is not Euclidean, neither homogeneous nor isotropic, since Euclidean space is precisely that space, purely mathematical, which the mind considers after the voiding of all physical content. This is actually a very important point, which I didn't expect when I first read it. I thought he was going to be arguing for the, you know, for the reality of a tri-dimensional Euclidean space for, for all of this di digression. It's it's funny because he goes through a lot of work to show that that space is tridimensional and Euclidean. And that reminds us that space itself is actually an abstraction. When we talk about, we talk about the reality of space, what we even mean what, what we mean when we say space, because that's a that's a term that, that sort of gets um yeah, here we go. It's it's in the it's in the zeitgeist a little bit that you could if I, I say like oh you know space is flat, space is curved, space is this, we have some idea in our head what we mean by space. But what we really mean by space is is a is is itself a being of reason. Space it's it's space without anything else to it. It doesn't have any other properties except its extension and its curvature of its non-Euclidean space. Mm -hmm. But this is already a being of reason, this is already an abstraction. The the actual space with the with the giant giant scare quotes around it has stuff in it is this is the space of the physical world right um even, even if it even if it only has minimal qualities like if there's there's the space that you occupy that has the properties of being bulge and all the properties that you have there is space where you aren't there might be air molecules there might be other things and we, we sort of talk okay what if we took that away what if we took that away what if we took, and then what we're left with is this abstraction of of geometric space as maritain calls it but again, that's an abstraction. So if we could take away everything else that makes that space actually exist, make it actually be outside the mind. Um, and, and it probably wasn't even known to physicists at this point, or it might have been just barely speculated on. What we find more and more is that that, that physical space, no matter how much we take out of it, still has properties beyond its extension. You know, people talk about quantum fields and the quantum foam and, and pair production and part of all these particle physics phenomenon. And it's it's very well understood that oh yeah that the empty space does a lot of stuff, so that so it's not empty space. It's space that still has stuff in it. It still has properties to it. And this is what and this is the point that he's making is it's it, how does he? I love the I love the sort of early twentieth century expression of it. Um, yeah, network of tensions and heterogeneous quali qualitative intensities. <laughs> is that there's stuff in it going on. It is it is not void. Yes. Void by definition is not. So mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't make sense to talk about a real void because if it was actually void it wouldn't be. Um, it's only real so, mathematically, which he's very exactly. careful with. Exactly, and the, and the, and that and math and mathematics, as we saw a chapter or two ago, is the first degree of abstraction. We abstract yes. away everything but extension. Geometry is what's left behind when you abstract away all the things that isn't like we we gave I gave the pizza example earlier. If I've got a round pizza, I abstract away everything that makes the pizza pizza except its shape. The only thing left that I haven't forgotten about is shape. That's when I get to math. That's when I get the idea of circle. But again, that circle doesn't exist in itself. It exists in the pizza. The same is true of space. Space is what's left when I abstract away all the stuff that is. And if I get rid of everything but extension, I get this idea of space. But space itself does not exist of itself. Yes. I'm ranting, no. but I love it. Go ahead. No, no, no it's good. Uh, now, I may have to give some context for this next quote, which 
Uh, the context is basically that he's talking about a space time, which I might, uh, I might just read the entire paragraph. It's quite long, but or else it, you you won't get what he's talking about. So I'll just read it. Just interrupt me or skip ahead or explain it better if you feel the need to. So it is important always to keep in mind that when a philosopher so speaks and this is directly after, so you're not missing anything, so speaks, from the very fact that he opposes the physical and the geometrical as two irreducible orders, so they're not reducible to each other, which is very important, he understands things in an entirely different way than the new physics. Faithful to the essential spirit of modern science, the latter tends, however far it falls short of it, to be transformed completely into geometry. Thereby, and for that very reason, it abandons the absolute discrimination between the physical and the geometrical, as well as the search for physical causes considered in themselves or in their qualitative reality. In order to advance freely in this way, Einstein's stroke of genius was to have bent geometry itself to the needs of physics, and to have conceived the space which by its geometric properties renders account of all the phenomena of gravitation. The continuum according to which the universe is extended becomes then a non-Euclidean and four-dimensional continuum in which time and space are no longer measured in an independent manner but form an indissoluble complex. The geometric properties of the space-time thus conceived are themselves modified by the matter which occupies it. That is to say, by what is capable of putting the measuring instruments with which we explore it off. Clocks, graduated scales, light rays, compasses, electroscopes, etc. The movement of the stars follow natural paths, which are the geodesic curves of his space-time. Curves that are accentuated in the presence of material mass, so that the planets turn as in a sort of basin, owing to the incurvature of space in the vicinity of the sun which is a very impressive understanding for a guy who doesn't do this stuff for a living. But on to the actual quote I highlighted. Newtonian physicists reproach this synthesis raised on the foundation of a vast ensemble of measurements gathered from nature and confirmed by many verified prediction, predictions of being a put-up job. Newtonian physicists would be um, people who are opposed to the new physics, I suppose, which was still a thing that existed at the time, which is almost quaint. They complain that the search for physical forces, which ought to account for the phenomena of nature, is abandoned. Just as the Cartesian physicists saw in the substitution of attraction at a distance for vortex motions and avowal of impotence, they, in their turn, will see an avowal of impotence in the substitution of a geometric curve for mechanical force. They forget that it was along this line that modern physics committed itself from the beginning. It was by avowing not explicitly indeed, since the big sense in the beginning was thought to be a philosophy of nature, but practically its impotence with regard to physical causes considered in themselves or in their essences, that it began to compose a mathematical myth of the physical world, which delivers to it in an enigma in an in enigma the secrets of that world. The quote-unquote forces of classical physics appear from this point of view as a precarious compromise between the causes, quote-unquote, of philosophy and the purely empirometric entities of an evolved science of phenomena. 
And it must be said that the new physics has accomplished a progress of first importance in the scientific conception of the universe by manifesting this time in a radical and explicit fashion, the renunciation by physical mathematical knowledge of the search for physical causes taken in themselves and the profound tendency of the latter to free itself completely from philosophy. Any comments? I think it's pretty straightforward. Um, I, so I will say you mentioned earlier <laughs> mathematics is, is purely formal. Is there there is there is no nothing material or efficient in in mathematics, and as physics adopts this same mentality, it loses a lot of causality as well. It becomes almost purely formal. So he he talks about the um, Newtonian physicists of the day that that reject the the framing of general relativity. Um, that we've we've lost efficient causes, and this that's it's true to a large extent. You have, you, if you ask why does a why does a, a body move the way it does, you know why does a star? He mentions the motion of the stars along their geodesics. Why does a star move the way it does in general relativity? A, a general relativist would tell you, okay, that that's the way space time curves. It follows the curvature of space time along that path. Mm-hmm. Thinking that that's an expl- that that's an explanation. It's not an explanation. It's it's entirely circular. You constructed that non-Euclidean geometry to describe its motion. It's a description of its motion, not the cause of its motion. You've 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 abandoned the idea of okay, what is it that's actually doing the causing that's moving this thing? Why does it move the way it does? And you instead said, "Here's the equation that describes the way it moves. That's why it moves that way." You've replaced. You've you've abandoned um, looking for a cause with an ex- with a, with an expl- uh, explanatory equation. The the brilliant insight here by Maritain is that Newtonian physics had already done that for uh, 300 years prior. Mm-hmm. Is, that it, yes. is, is, is <laughs> when you go to, when you ask why things move in Newtonian physics, someone will tell you F equals MA or, you know, Newton's laws or, you know, this potential energy, the gradient of, and, and it's math. Like if you ask a, a modern physicist about a classical physics problem and ask why something happens, they'll answer with an equation. They'll tell you, and 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 there's this disconnect. They don't realize what they're telling. What they're doing is they're explaining how it behaves. They're not explaining why it behaves that way. Is they think that the math, the mathematical equational ex, um, um, description is the same thing as, as explaining the cause, the cause in the philosophical um, uh, Aristotelian sense of why the thing actually happens the way it does, why things are the way they are. And so, and physics. Um, didn't really lo- realize that it lost that 300 years ago. It had already, but it just becomes very manifest as it becomes more and more physico-mathematical. That by the time we get to the new physics, the idea of, of causes is, is quaint and forgotten, and you'll you'll hear modern physicists very um, uh, seriously talk about causality as being sort of an anachronism. Causality isn't wasn't a real thing that that needs to be thought about or believed in, and that's because they've they've uh, um, unknowingly but explicitly removed it from their conception of the world because there's no causality in equations and they think equations are real. Yes, very much so, which he gets into it. He doesn't directly say this, but he gets into a bit in this next part of the new physics. But let not this liberation from philosophy be taken as a new philosophy. We can take the space of the new physics in two ways. Literally, in which case we will step into metaphysical confusion, or as a being of reason, which is a geometric representation of real physical space. Now, I should probably read the entire first quote on uh, the first part on the metaphysical uh, confusion. 
In the first case, <clears throat> it will be said not only in the language and from the point of view of the physicist, as was accurately described above, uh, which would be quite legitimate, but also in the philosophical sense that the space postulated by the new physics is real geometric space and manifests the real geometric properties of the corporeal world. Hence, the latter becomes, in the measure in which the new physics has or will achieve the explanation of the universe by the geometric properties of the space invented for this purpose, amenable in itself to a purely geometric exegesis. To distinguish physical space from geometric space will then be to distinguish one geometric space from another geometric space, which we've sort of been harping on the mathematization of physics and becoming a formal science instead of a, a material science. To distinguish the properties of real geometric space when there is matter in it from, a par from the properties of the same real geometric space when it is void of matter, mass or energy, quantity of movement, pressures, etc., and occupied solely by something like that immaterial, quote unquote, ether, without which we have not yet succeeded in getting along, which Maritana's atomist must have found this really funny. The idea that people were going to find something immaterial by experimentation. <laughs> at, the, at the same time, the proper object of geometry, as well as the superior level of, of abstraction and epistemological independence, is misunderstood. To the extent that it is not a pure empty form, it is regarded as an experimental science, quote-unquote, which only gets an objective content rendering it true from physical entities and physical measurements, thanks to which the mind chooses as real space, the one from among the diverse formal spaces that it pleases to imagine, which permits the greatest and most perfect geometrization of physics. Under the pretext that space is a network of distances, but which the geometrician measures ideally and deductively, one will pretend to give to, ge to geometry as a quote-unquote natural science as object a network of distances materially and empirically measured with the aid of physical apparatuses. Uh, so that's the first part. So he's basically saying that you essentially end up confusing a geometric space with a physical space, and you don't get to the real world at all. Any comment on that before I go to the, the second case? I, I think he's he's saying things that we've mentioned previously, and he's just saying them more eloquently than we can. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy to leave it at that. All right. So uh, let me see the second case. In the other case, the space of the new physics, whether it be empty, quote unquote, because he thinks it's hilarious that there would be a empty physical space, I suppose, or filled with matter, will be recognized as a physical mathematical being of uh, being of reason, expressly constructed in such a way as to save all the known appearances and which will be modified in proportion to any deviations that will be observed between the construction already established by reason and new data of experience. This being of... <clears throat> This being of reason then appears as a geometric symbol of real space, understanding physical space in the sense given to this word by the philosopher of whom we were speaking above. It appears as the geometric or metageometric symbol, which best translates the reality of physical interactivities, the ontological investigation of the nature of which is abandoned for the sake of a better mathematical analysis. So the double irreducibility, a sort of sacred good for the intellect, of the physical ontologically considered in its essence to the mathematical and of the geometric to the experimental is safeguarded. 
At the same time, it is understood that the geometrization of physics can be accomplished only by means of the introduction of a physics mathematically recast into the very heart of geometry itself. It will abound all the more richly in beings of reason and in proportion as it is asked to absorb into its symbols and to mathematize real physical being, it will leave behind the more decidedly real geometric being. Any considerations on that? He has a short comment on, I think, quantum physics, which in my notes, I just wrote, there is a digression into quantum physics, which I do not care about. <laughs> uh, and, and basically, he's, it's the, the, the same I'll, kinds of ideas. Okay. Um, apply I can in quantum. read it later. It's not super important, but it's the same general ideas that you have in quantum theory. It's, it's not as the, in general relativity, the focus is on geometry and the shape of, of, of real space. In quantum physics, it's on where things are. It's, it's again, the same idea as we have equations that no longer need to describe reality if, or that, that we can use as descriptions that will match pointer readings, but that can be very much divorced from what, what is actually there. And we replace it instead with this mathematical construct. No longer, it's, it's now a statistical construct instead of a geometric one. Um, but again, we're we're trying we're we're getting more and more purely mathematical in our description of reality, and moving further and further away from the ontological. Mm -hmm. So, uh, shall we move on to philosophy of nature, or any final thoughts on his uh, digression into real space? Let's go on to let's finish that digression and move on to the discussion of philosophy of nature. So you want me to read the uh, the last part of quantum physics? No. Oh, okay. So <laughs> digression finished. All right. <laughs> digression finished then. Uh, let me change my notes to the philosophy of nature section. Uh, all right. Uh, all right. So uh, part of it is me paraphrasing. Part of it is my return in all of this. So begins with mere imperiological knowledge is not enough. The mind is not content with it because it cannot penetrate into the mysteries of the world. So to quote Maraton, those philosophical or pre-philosophical substructure, substructures without which the scientists cannot get along are a sure sign of it. It is a knowledge of being itself that is needed. I mean a knowledge of corporeal, sensible, and mobile being of the being imminent in those realities of nature in which the sciences of phenomena reach their terminus and find their verification. Those realities which constitute the basis of all their conceptual constructions and over which these constructions give us practical mastery. Now, the next few quotes are long, so any comments on this beginning before we go on? Sure. So the... the... Um, we talked previously in an, in an earlier chapter, I think, about his the philosophy of nature as he describes it. So we have still um, what is properly physics, the second degree of abstraction, where we're considering being as changeable being. There's the sort of modern trend of it, which is this physico-mathematical, what we would in the modern days call physics, where we're looking at equations and measurements and trying to make accurate predictions. And then there's the actual philosophy of physics. There's understanding what is. So answering those questions that were ignored earlier about, okay, what, what causes things to behave the way they are? What are things actually? What are they ontologically? Um, and again, this is, these, are, these, are, these are properly speaking physics or physica, uh, Aristotle's physica uh, questions, um, not metaphysical questions, but that they are actually, they're still philosophical questions. They are ontological. They are trying to, to, to probe at the being of these physical things. 
Um, and the point he's making here is that um, we we all have a we all put on our philosopher hats from from time to time. We we want we we the the mind automatically points itself towards those questions. It wants to know what is. Mm-hmm. And this it is what gets just, us- yeah. It says a scientist cannot get along without philosophical or pre-philosophical substructures to his thought, for example. Yes. But even like just in the there is this. The question we always think we're answering or always want to answer is is what is this thing? Why is it this way? We want we want to answer philosophical questions. And the trouble that we get into and that the new physics gets into very deeply is it doesn't have any firm grounding in philosophy and what it has are equations. And so it tries to build a philosophy. I think you mentioned in the previous section, it tries to build a philosophy of nature out of these equations that ends up with some with nonsense. Um and and because we always want to do this sort of myth making, he mentions these these physical myths that we come up with, because we have equations and we want to do, what we want to do is actually describe the world. We actually want to have ontology. It's not even you know, that it ends up with nonsense; it ends up with more geometry, which is yes. funny in and of itself. But it ends up saying things that are that are that don't that uh, aren't true about the world. Yes, yes, the in, world. That, in in that sense, they are nonsense. Is that they are they are not they do not they do not correspond to the evidence of our eyes. Yeah, please, don't trust ahead. your lying eyes. All right. So we must take up, however, the epistemological uh, epistemological conditions and characteristics of the philosophy of nature. It is an intelligible being itself, however obscured by sensible matter, that knowledge of this sort resolves its concepts. It belongs to an ontological type of explanation wherein the natural movement of the speculative intellect finds full play. It does not cling to empirical conditions, but to reasons of being and to to causes properly so called. It aims to discover the essence of things, proceeding, as all philosophy does, according to an analytical synthetic method. It depends on experience much more stringently than metaphysics and must be able to carry its judgments right down to sense verification. Nevertheless, it is a deductive science, assigning reasons and intelligible necessities in proportion as it ascertains the intrinsic constitutive or the quiddity of its objects. Quiddity, you can sort of replace essence. Uh... In that sentence, for example, it belongs to the philosophy of nature to instruct us about the nature of the continuum and of number, of quantity, of space, of motion, of time, of corporeal substance, of transitive action, of vegetative and sensitive life, of the soul and of its operative powers, etc., etc., It is also its role to consider the ontological disposition of this universe, even as Aristotle did at the end of the physics, its relation to the first cause and the balance between the necessary, the contingent, and the fortuitous in the course of events. Any comment before I get to his proper definition? So I love what he goes into here because it goes along with something that I've I've been saying following Maritain for a while is that is that this is the proper object of of physica is it's is answering these physical questions and that naturally leads he says at the end a relation to the first cause is that 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 a, a ph- philosophical understanding of of again i, I say physics i mean physica i mean the, the natural mm-hmm. sciences um, physica is just the greek word for nature for those unaware if correct. i'm co- correct 
yeah, so, well, change or, or changeable nature in any case. So, yes, so, yes, so, so strictly speaking, all like chemistry, biology, um, all all the sciences are are probably speaking physica, unless they involve um, like the human mind, in which case they'd sort of become metaphysical because we have an immaterial soul. Um, but beyond that, is that that physics ultimately ends up pointing us towards metaphysics? Is that by by answering all these philosophy of nature questions or, or, or digging into these the ontological disposition of the universe, which is a is a question for physica, that leads us to the relationship to the first cause and leads us to metaphysics. Which of and course it, it must, since the metaphysics is the underlining substrate of you know the foundation of the physica. Yes, but, and but it's it's foundational in a. In a it, it is properly foundational, but the the but in our knowledge, the physica comes first. Is the physica leads to those metaphysical questions because that the the physica is more is more intuitive to us. Yes, and so we're, we're change. We might I might even argue that maybe part of it is simultaneous, so that when you notice change, you you notice an actualization of potential, and the moment you abstract that, no, I suppose you are correct. The moment you abstract an actualization of potential and you just consider act and potency, then you're in metaphysics. Okay. And, yeah. I see and, what you're saying. And, and I mean, temporally it, it might be happened simultaneously, but the, the, you have to, you have to apprehend the physical. Yes. yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. I understand what you're saying. I was thinking that maybe you could do them. No, but no, there is a, a movement of abstraction in the intellect, I think. Right. Um, yeah, but no, I love this. It's, it's it, it, and in my mind, it, it explains what the proper role of, of a science should be. And, and in, in Meriton's mind, there are two very separate things. There's the physical mathematical that's going and doing its its thing. And there's the philosophy of nature that needs to go and do its thing. Um, and never the twain shall meet. And I would argue we need to find a way to get the, the physical mathematical sciences to, to re to or to, to sort of re-embrace Thomistic metaphor or Thomistic philosophy and understand that they, that they should be a philosophy of nature, that they should be actually co coherently answering ontological questions. Yes, I think he's he sort of makes the argument that they're separate disciplines. However, the uh, philosopher of nature has a duty to, uh, what, how does he put it, to absor absorb, not absorb, absorb, I got the, got the letter wrong, absorb all the material of uh, physical mathematical sciences. And even yeah. the non-physical mathematical, like a lot of biology would not be considered physical mathematical i suppose uh, it's, it's getting there <laughs> yeah it's getting there but i suppose it's not reducible to the physical mathematical uh as it is right now at least uh right so the philosopher of nature almost acts as a course correction for the for the actual for the scientists as the word is understood today it's when they get too wacky in their theories of reality it kind of reminds them yes. that what they're talking about are models or you know, geometric symbols for the physicists at least, geometric symbols of reality, not or meta geometric even, not reality itself. And what I, what I would say, and I think it's the same thing, but what I would say is that the 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 physicist or the scientist needs to also be a philosopher of nature, as you don't get to yeah, just yeah. wear the one hat. As you need to, yeah, you, he you would just to... say they're different hats. Yes, they should. You maybe you. I mean, there's many cases where one ought to wear many different hats. You know, yes. you can. But you, if you, you're you, a physicist, you should also be a father, either a spiritual father or a literal father. Mm -hmm. um, and those are different hats. When you're hearing confession, I hope you're not, you know, uh, <laughs> trying to figure out if the latest theory is wrong or not, and paying attention to <laughs> the guy who's confessing to you. Or when you're with your kids, I hope you're playing with them and not a. Uh, but the <laughs> not the doing point something else. I would, but but to to do science correctly, to do physics correctly, you must also do philosophy of nature correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
it wouldn't be in the new physics, I suppose. Not a, we would have to change our the current understanding, cultural understanding, at least. Yes, of, I mean, uh, I think, what I think that's what needs, needs to be a physicist. That's what needs to happen, I think. Right. <laughs> I think that would help physics immensely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, want, I think it would too. Do you want to go right. ahead with with the def definition of philosophy of nature? All right, we're kind of so we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves a bit. Defining philosophy of nature. So, quoting Maraton now, we shall have to say it is a knowledge whose object, present in all things of corporeal nature, is mobile being as such, and the ontological principles which account for its mutability. For it is essentially a philosophy of mutability. This knowledge came into existence with Aristotle when he showed that an ontology of the sensible world is possible, not precisely insofar as it is sensible, but insofar as it is the very world-changing being, and that it implies in its structure intelligible invariance depending upon specifying forms. So we can actually break this down and spend, I think, the next two hours discussing it if we really wanted to, but any comments? I'd rather not spend the two hours discussing that paragraph, thanks. Yeah, but <laughs> no comments then. Moving on, or? Yeah, that's fine with me. All right. So it is important to remember, as St. Thomas often said, probably Aquinas, that in general, the essence of sensible things remain hidden from us because of the matter in which it is, as it were, buried. It is only in the mathematical order that we can openly consider a world of essences. That is why mathematics is the most imperious and the most luxurious of the human sciences. In the physical world, it is possible to attain to essential and specifying definitions which are certain concerning man and things of man and uh, things of man, his powers, habitus, etc. But below man, uh, but below man, for the most part, the element of resistance to intelligibility introduced by matter, rendering corporeal essences opaque to our view, knowable by signs rather than by properties in the ontological sense, keeps the essences hidden from us in their specificity. From these observations, it follows that the philosophy of nature cannot reach down to the ultimate specific diversities of corporeal nature. And this implies a graver restriction on the philosophical optimism of the ancients. Any comment or? I think, and I love the, the flowing prose. It could, could be concisely said as we, we do not directly observe essence. Yes. <laughs> you can really put this whole paragraph in one, maybe two sentences max. You can really just say, you can just say, um, the essence of sensible things remain hidden from us because of the matter in which it is buried. And mm -hmm. like another sentence to clarify and move on. <laughs> and again, I think it's a lovely point, but it's it's one that I think he's assuming his audience will know anyway. So I don't know why he bothers to take so long to say it. But again, to, to summarize, in, in math, we can actually have essences. I can know the essence of circle as circle because it is that is laid bare before me. There's There's no matter to get in the way. I can only know uh, the essence of a physical thing deductively and through the through the properties that it presents to my senses and through my intuition. I do not directly have contact with those essences, and so I'm I'm what it was. Yeah, there's there's a, a grave restriction on the optimism of the ancients that we can know the essence of all things. The important exception is man, uh, of course, because uh, we are man, and therefore yes. we are, in in a sense, uh, not only direct observers but uh, the essence itself in a way. Almost. Uh, we we know, are we, what we are, yeah. 
yeah, we are what we are. It's almost A is A level of thinking. So therefore, A knows if A is capable of knowing, A knows A almost directly. There is no, uh, there's no mediation there. So moving on. When it is a question of a distinction between certain vast domains, between non-living bodies and living bodies, between animals and plants, between man and irrational animals, the philosophy of nature does indeed grasp the essential differences. There, we are in a region accessible to the philosopher's view, and we can attain properly philosophical certitudes in the very order of typological discrimination. In other words, we know that there is an essential difference between plant irritability and animal sensibility. We know that the imminent action by which the living organism constructs itself, the activities of sensation and intellection, all disclose quiditative essential, really, it's the, it means the same thing, qu uh, principles, which enable us to penetrate into the intimate structure of the beings we are considering. We know that a body as such is constituted by two complementary ontological principles, one purely potential and determinable, the other specifying and determining, which we call prime matter and substantial form. Nevertheless, the philosophy of nature has to be satisfied in such matters with certitudes of a very lofty universality. It must abandon all the specific diversities and peculiarities in the world of bodies, all the detail of the operations of sensible nature to what Leibniz called symbolic or blind knowledge, and we propose to call empiriological knowledge. Indeed, this latter knowledge does descend to detail, but the essence escapes it. Very interesting few points there. Any comment or do we, do we need to clarify? Just 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 briefly to sort of resummarize is, is like aristotle does in in Danimus, we can um philosophy of nature still can give us some something of the essence of things like you said we know man is a rational animal we know an animal is not a plant because an animal we, we can define animal as being as, as having that essential quality of sense knowledge um and being able to know a plant is different than a dead thing because it has these reproductive and nutritive powers so we can we can specify the, very broadly those essences. We can say what the what the essence of a plant is, what the essence of an animal is, what the essence of a man is. Um, it is much more difficult, and we and we run into limitations if I try and dis distinguish the essence of say a cat from a dog. As I can talk about physical features, and I can, and I might be able to get something of their essence and talk about the distinctions. But in that the the the, the specific essences again, because I don't have. I I, I don't have uh, direct spiritual or, or immaterial knowledge of these things. I'm I'm limited in my ability to 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 give a full um, or have full knowledge of their essence. Mm -hmm. Should shall I move on? Sure. Now let us note that there is perfect knowledge only when we know things, not in a more or less indirect, indistinct fashion by stopping at generic determinations, but by coming right down to ultimate specific determinations. If metaphysics is a perfect knowledge, we shall return to this point later in another chapter, I think, because I don't remember him returning to this point. It is because it's specifying object being disengaged as being by formal abstraction is not a genius, genus, but a transcendental, which taken as such stands at the ultimate degree of logical determination. What then is the case for the philosophy of nature? Its object is not ends in quantum ends, the object of the met metaphysician, so being as being. Uh, 
The specifying object of the philosophy of nature is the ontological mutability and formalities in which the mind can discern a difference of being, corporeity, quantity, motion, life, animality, etc., which corporeal natures take with within corporeal natures taken as such. And this suffices to assure its distinction and autonomy in regard to the experimental sciences. On the other hand, sensible, sensible or mobile being is itself complete. That is to say, it has the integrity of its determinations only in specific natures. Hence, it follows that the philosophy of nature is not a complete knowledge without the sciences of nature. Experimental science and philosophy of nature are two distinct but incomplete knowledges, subject to different controls, the one above all of the intelligible and the other above all of the observable, which complete each other as best they can. They both thereby belong to the same degree of abstraction, though from another point of view of the philosophy of nature, as we have seen, is essentially different than the science of nature." So he's essentially commenting that uh, philosophy of nature is actually not a complete knowledge of its subject matter. It is a specific view of its subject matter, which to be completed needs experimental sciences. It is incomplete without them. They are they need one another to complete to complete themselves. Right, which I think I think is similar to what we had said previously. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have no objection to comparing the relation of the philosophy of nature with the sciences of nature to the relation of a rational soul with the body, which is an interesting comparison, I suppose. In itself, the first is independent of the state of development of the second and of their hypotheses. It relies on philosophical facts, which are much more simple and fundamental than scientific facts. Uh, am I going, I'm now debating whether I'm going to read this entire large paragraph to get to the one thing I highlighted. How about you just jump ahead to what you highlighted? All right. Scientific facts all by themselves cannot furnish the least philosophical decision, but the proper light of philosophical objects and principles, like the light of the agent intellect illuminating phantasms, causes the philosophical contents which with, with which they are pregnant to issue forth from them. Yeah, which is the yeah, this, this is the essential thing of these two paragraphs. So this goes back to your point that the scientist should be the experimental scientist should also be a philosopher of nature because it illuminates them uh, and causes the philosophical content of his discoveries to issue forth from them. Which Perfect. is any comment on that or shall I move on to the next page? I think you're good to go on. All right. The hylomorphic doctrine, for example, is as true today as it was in the time of Aristotle. Uh, its vocabulary and exemplifications have grown old, but not its substance. The four elements of former times are replaced by the 92 elements of Mendeleev's table. Uh, they correspond to a very different scientific notion. We have a much more rigorous knowledge of the family of elements than did the chemists of 100 years ago. And then he goes on and gives several examples of you know mutations and hydrogens and so on and so forth. And then goes on to say, indeed, this ensemble of imperiological knowledge lends itself better to the ontology of Aristotle than to that of Democritus or of Descartes. And may I add, may I add, better, no doubt, than the experimental conceptions in favor among the alchemists of the Middle Ages. So now we move on to complementary elucidations, which I have a large chunk highlight on the first page, and then uh, it sort of peters off a little. But any comment before I move on to that? No, I think let's let's jump on to, to your large uh, highlight. <laughs> All right. Let's say 
Yes, exclamation mark. But doesn't Mr. Eddington in his rich imagery tell us that a body is a quote-unquote tube of a four-dimensional universe separated from the rest of space-time by a more or less sharp limit, unquote? Surely we are far from the universe of Aristotle. We are certainly far from the scientific ideas of Aristotle, but we are talking about his philosophy. Whether an elephant be an isolated tube of a four-dimensional universe or a lump of flesh and bones composed of four elements and four primary qualities, in either case there is no resemblance between the idea that science or common sense forms of this animal, an idea that can be expressed in an image or in a spatial temporal scheme, which is at least reductively imaginable, and the essentially unimaginable and purely ontological conception which philosophy reaches from the first principles of which the substance of the same animal is constituted. Prime matter and substantial form belong to another noematic universe than this lump or tube. Neither favors the hylomorphic theory more than the other. It rests on something other than these images. Whether it be a tridimensional lump or a quadridimensional tube, an elephant still has to perform that operation which both the ordinary man and the scientist call eating, although they may form very diverse images of it, and it still has to end with the phenomena that both call dying. The philosopher, knowing that the elephant in question is an individual substance, one in itself, specifically different from the plant that it assimilates by nutrition and the inorganic materials into which its corpse will decompose, is forced to seek the subject of these substantial mutations in a radical potentiality which, following Aristotle, he will call prime matter, though one could wish for a better name. Naturally, he is unable to describe what figure prime matter has, either in three-dimensional or four-dimensional space because it doesn't have any figure. Now, I any comment before I move on to the next page? So I, I do like the, the idea at the beginning is, is we're far from the scientific ideas of Aristotle. We were talking about his philosophy. Yes. And I, I always like to say that, that Aristotle was, was, that was, was quite a good physicist in terms of physics. His, his mechanics was garbage. His, <laughs> his, empiricism, his empiricism was terrible. But the, his philosophy of nature is, like as I mentioned in the previous thing, is, is more correct than than Democritus or Descartes or the or the or the alchemists of the Middle Ages. Is he 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 knew better what was, even if he couldn't describe it very effectively, or or if he couldn't make effective mathematical predictions of their behavior. That's all. Yes, and, and I quite like his image of it that uh, you know, whether an elephant is a tridimensional lump or a tridimensional <laughs> tube, it still has to eat and then it has to die. Yep. And you know, it is one thing in both systems, and then it stops being one thing when it dies and becomes inorganic matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, also prime matter, you can't, you're not going to find prime matter because it doesn't have a figure. It's not in. It's not. It's not a, an object in itself. A lump of prime matter. Yeah, and in fact, in fact, cannot exist of itself. Yes. Yeah. It, by definition, almost. It's well, part I mean, of the definition of prime matter, but it just can't. Yeah, because it would be. It would have. If if it were something, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be matter. It would have form. Yeah, it wouldn't be prime matter. It would have a form. It's not. It wouldn't be radically. It wouldn't be radical potentiality in itself. Right. All right. So. The question then arises as to what relation the philosophy of nature can have, not now with the facts or with entia realia, real being, more or less completed by reason, but with pure entia rationalis, uh, rational being or beings of reason, and the well-founded myths of science. Let us complete what we were saying above. We believe that the philosophy of nature ought to take over the entire material supplied by the experimental sciences. 
But although it can base itself on facts established by these sciences as upon foreign material that it appropriates, it clearly cannot require from a physical mathematical being of reason the means of elucidating the nature of things in itself and ontologically. It ought to make use of such beings of reason, but in another way. Namely, inasmuch as the latter is one of the elements in the image of the universe established for science, by, by science, I mean. For the philosophy of nature cannot do without scientific imagery. It needs the image or the symbol that the science of its day fashions for the world. Any comment before I move on to the next page or something else you want to add? I, that I'm I think what, over? I'm, I'm, I believe what he's getting into now is, again, talking about this sort of idea of myth making and that the... the mm -hmm. The this normal mode is exactly backwards as we try and just create a philosophy of nature from our physico mathematical equational um, uh, empirical information and not from any kind of well established philosophy. And so we can we, philosophy of nature can use those results certainly, but it has to do it in a philosophic mode, and we can't we can't do things backwards and start trying to make these beings of reason like the like real space that we talked about for an hour earlier mm -hmm. into into the real into the what the real world is is it's and we we again he's now getting into that idea that we're that we end up getting these crazy conceptions by doing those things backwards the proper role of philosophy of nature is to do philosophy and and in a way proper to its mode and to use insights from the empirical but to not uh, to not let them dominate its its mode of myth making yes so Onto the next page. Meanwhile, what can the philosopher himself make of a myth? Obviously, only another myth, this time a philosophical one. There is no other way for the philosophy of nature to take up into its own order the well-founded myths of physical mathematical knowledge than to become a fabricator of myths in its turn. Do we not know, do we not know that the philosopher is in a certain way a lover of myths? Philosophus est aliqualiter philomythes. So I'm actually going to read the very brief footnote. This is the first and only time I will do this for the show, because I found it somewhat interesting and odd, in which he says, this is a, what I just read is a lat, quote in Latin from St. Thomas Aquinas, because of course it is. And in his footnote, he says, as a matter of fact, Aristotle did not say that a philosopher is in a certain way a mythophile, which is who uh, Aquinas believed he was quoting, but that a mythophile is in a certain way a philosopher. And then he, you know, casually puts the ancient Greek there and cites chapter and verse <laughs> from the metaphysics. So Aquinas probably didn't read ancient Greek and was working with a Latin translation, and they got that, uh, that phrase the other way around, which I just found somewhat charming to, to find that he's correcting the, the, the very phrase he's quoting in his footnotes. It's Which, like actually, if, if you look at the if you look at the original Greek, yeah, yeah, actually, he just actually Saint Aquinas who he's quoting in this very passage. All right, Mer Maritain flexing on everyone. It's amazing. Yeah. So to give an example of what we mean. Um, a vast field is thus open to the creative imagination of a philosopher when, for example, he aims to interpret in the light of an otherwise well-established philosophical doctrine, like, for example, the hylomorphic doctrine, the provisional image which science fashions of the microstructure of the atom. Hardly will he have invented a sufficiently probable hypothesis admitted, for example, that the substantial form informs the intraatomic ether as well as the central nucleus and the electrons that encircle it, 
Then the scheme of Rutherford and Bohr, to which this interpretation is related, will already be on its way to bankruptcy. He will have to readapt it or invent another. The philosopher might also busy himself with the four-dimensional universe or with the ether that that present-day physicists try not to talk about. That's in quotes. I don't know who he's quoting at that in this moment. Although it seems they will still have difficulty in doing without it. But if he thought that this was engaging in the work of philosophical knowledge, so-called, one could only regret his courage. All right. So I have one more quote before we get into mechanism. Are we ready? Or uh, any any comments? Ayn, you're muted, by the way. I am muted. Sorry. I think it's going over <laughs> things we've mentioned in passing already. So I think you're good to yeah. go on. All right. So. It is certainly remarkable that only in the world of sensible nature do we find our knowledge shared by a philosophy and an experimental science related to each other as the soul to the body. No such duality is found in the other universes of intelligibility. Mathematics has no ontological soul. It has only an abstract body, an abstract and ideal body. Metaphysics has no imperiological body. It is only spirit. So that's a nice little capping off of this section. Yep. Very again, beautifully he, written. He's, again, there, there's such, it's such dense prose, and then you'll have sentences like that. It's like, oh, that's just, that's just good. Like, it's just yeah, that's well just written. Very, very good. <laughs> just a little, like a, little, a golf clap or a hat tip. Like, that's, that's just <laughs> nice. Very nice. So, mechanism, the part of which I have no notes. So, there will probably be a few pages completely skipped in this, which might be necessary for time anyway. It'll be fine. All right. So, mechanism. Do you have any preliminary thing you want to talk about, or should I just get right into it? Because I barely remember what he talks about in this section. Um, go ahead and jump into it, and I'll, I'll be able to fill in as you go. All right. So, I'll, I'll uh, number the points as we go so that you can find yourself if you want in your copy. Point 30. If the preceding analyses are correct, we can see that the central error of modern philosophy in the domain of the knowledge of nature has been to give the value of an ontological explanation to the type of mechanist attraction imminent in physical mathematical knowledge and to take the latter for a philosophy of nature. It is not a philosophy of nature. It is an imperiological analysis of nature, mathematical in form and control, an empirometric analysis. So we've already gone over this. Uh... We've gone over this quite a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll just add this one little phrase to him, which I th- uh, to this, which I thought was neat, which is in the second paragraph of this point, which is, let us say that the new scientific conceptions only manifest more daringly the intent of transmuting physics into a universalized mathematics. So uh, I skip point thirty one entirely because I have no highlights of it. <laughs> And then I go to into dangerous liaisons, which sounds like like a, the name of a French pulp novel. I'm glad it's in this book, however. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, so, in dangerous liaisons, point thirty-two, paragraph three, uh, the second principle of thermodynamics offers still other resources to the philosophy of nature, especially in regard to the philosophy of the living organism. 
it is not one of the marks of the irre irreducible specificity of living things that without violating this principle, but rather using it for its own advantage, they profit by the universal process of a degradation of energy variously to reconstruct order and organization to raise for a time the degree of being. I do not mean to the, as to the quality of the energy, for life does not release a special form of energy, but as to perfection of a higher order, properly biological or psychic. Life, material life, is a constructive fire which feeds upon decay. Which, any comment on that? Because I do have one which is somewhat interesting. You go ahead first. Uh, it's not actually a comment on it, on this itself, but there is a small essay by Nick Land which hits upon the same idea, and I am completely 100% sure Nick Land has never read Degrees of Knowledge. The idea of Nick Land is actually a very continental way of phrasing, but uh, he says, if, if you feel the world is very confusing, it's because we build order out of decay, but decay is a forward, is a, in, in his very weird way of putting it, the forward direction of time, and we try to reverse time. So that's one way of thinking as to why the world appears weird and confusing from a from a very civilized man's perspective of things, mm -hmm. which I thought was interesting. But he had this uh, this small idea in a uh, I guess in the Venn diagram of ideas. Nick Land and Jacques Maritain share at least this one idea, which is curious. It is it is a strange overlap. It's a dangerous liaison, if you will. It is a dangerous um, liaison, if you will. So, so um, one of the the bigger things he's trying to do in this section is is looking at again. So we have going into the the advent of the new physics, we have a very deterministic world. Um, we have the there's sort of an understanding that that is um, trying to leave behind um, again as it, because it is a formal system. It's trying to leave behind a lot of the material, but it's also trying to leave a lot behind a lot of the the immaterial, and and so we're left with just form. And so we have all these issues like, okay, well, we have living things. How do we make sense of those in terms of quantum mechanics or the new physics? Or he brings up uh, the, the Carnot engine or uh, entropy in the second law of thermodynamics. And is, so the, a big effort that he's trying to make here is trying to make sense of, from the, from the perspective of a philosophy of nature, because we want to understand what things actually are, how do we understand these um, physico-mathematical principles in terms of what we actually see, you know, how does how does life make sense in the light of of uh, the existence of entropy or the second principle of thermodynamics? Yes, so that, that, that's that, that's one of the, the bigger thing, the bigger pictures he's mm -hmm. trying to address here. All right, so to uh, to cap off point thirty two, I just skipped to a final paragraph, mm -hmm. uh, which is not that important, but it is neat. Finally, how could the imagination of, or of the philosopher, or of the poet for that matter, not be enchanted by those light atoms that condense and transform themselves into heavy ones in order to radiate light and heat? By that matter whose mass has its internal energy as measure, by those stars which by ceaselessly reducing their erstwhile enormous mass and that will go out completely after thousands of billions of years, meanwhile pour energy into the universe. How could he not see in these things huge symbols of the very mysteries of the life of the spirit? Again, just very, very nice flowery prose. <laughs> yes, very, just very nice. So point 33 which is something that we've said. I'm just, I, I'm actually going to read this. We, 
100% did not read need to read this little section which I highlighted, but I want to I want the viewer to understand how much he's hammering this point home and that we're not exaggerating by repeating it. May it never be forgotten what an error it would be to try to build a philosophy of nature and not for a metaphysics on the theoretical conclusions of modern physics and its explanations of the world taken as ontological foundations, as if those conclusions and explanations could be utilized as such by the philosopher and without a previous rigid critique. This, this or that was the error committed by Spinoza with the physics of his day. So I, we're not exaggerating when we keep saying that uh, physicists, the error of a lot of physicists is to make their theory or their geometric symbol of real physical space into a metaphysical theory. And it goes beyond just the error of the physicists. I think I think it started with the physicists, but it's oh, it it's is, only spread. It's it, a mass it, error. It's, it's 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 the error of our of our time. It's the it's the error of our metaphysics. It's the yeah, error it's in of the, the water, so to speak. It's the error of the Reddit atheist. Like it's mm -hmm. it's the it's and and if you and I've, I've had some of these arguments on Twitter in the past. As soon as you start pushing anyone any of these ideas, they will try and use modern physics to defend their positions. Not understanding modern physics, but with performing this same error as they've they have this they have the the poem or the myth that general relativity or quantum mechanics says gives and they use that as the basis of the philosophy of nature as their understanding of nature comes out of those myths instead of out of a, a genuine grounded philosophy based in the sensible oh yeah and it's and it's it is it is the um epistemological and philosophical error of our time is that that is the 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 is that we have made the error that Meriton has said would be so grave is that our our general understanding of the world or for most most people of the world and I think we're all guilty of it to some extent is that we built our philosophy of nature and from that our metaphysics is built on this um of this myth making that comes from modern science so uh he let me see if this yeah he sort of gives an example of this with the indeterminacy principle. Uh, let me see. We pointed out above that the principle of indetermination introduces gaps in the field of scientific causality, or more exactly, in the field of those substitutes for causality which physical mathematical knowledge reaches by recasting the concept of cause. But if such can be the case, it is only to the precise extent that science abandons any ontological point of view and gives up thinking phenomena sub entis or under rational existence or being i forget, I've, i don't know what entis is at the moment because it's not ends to give philosophical value to this abandonment which makes sense only in the empiriological domain would be a grave mistake it is impossible for human science to know to know determinately the behavior of a corpuscule at each instant for it observes and measures things with the aid of material instruments and in virtue of physical activities. It can only see an and can only see an electron by jogging it with light. But suppose a pure spirit who knows without material means, and so no longer by means of imperiological concepts, the behavior of this corpuscule at each instant, it would see that the principle of causality, causality applies strictly and in its full ontological sense. The hypothesis of a pure spirit has no meaning for the physicist, but if it had no meaning for a metaphysician, there would be no metaphysics. So any comment on the 
the science of the indeterminacy principle and how it uh, corresponds to what he's talking about? Yeah, so there's sort of two conflicting things that are going on here. Is with the rise of quantum mechanics, you have this idea of indeterminacy. You have um, uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty relationship, which again, the, the myth-making goes that you, you can't describe the position and momentum of a particle at the same time or in the more extreme form that a particle doesn't have a well-defined position and momentum at the same time. Um, and on the one hand, it's like, okay, this, this is great for people that want to have free will. We no longer have determinism. We can actually have, you know, our, our you know, we can, we can have uh, immaterial action affecting the physical world. But uh, the drawback that being that it, it enters the, the scientific is just random. It's like, okay, well, this, it becomes a causal which is very mm -hmm. different from having a non-physical cause. Um, the again, the as he says, the the uh, physicist uh, or the pure spirit has meaning for those physicists. But we also have this absurdity to say, okay, something is, is not some is, isn't somewhere and going in some direction at the same time. It's either one or the other, uh, which is an absurdity. Again, because mm -hmm. a, a pure spirit, an angel, could could see the thing in its essential purity and know exactly what it's doing and where it is and how it's behaving. The fact that we are in some way restricted from seeing this is is you know, convenient for, for killing off determinism as a field. Um, but if we try and make it the actual reality, we end up saying confusing things. We end up saying things that don't make sense. We, we, yes, it's we give up on the existence itself. Well, it, it must be what it is, even if we can't know what it is. It's important to note, uh, or to at least uh, remind the audience if, if they don't know that, uh, as far to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, the Heisenberg indeterminacy principle only applies because we are material beings. The idea in the principle is not in itself. If someone could observe a thing without material means, what uh, Mahatan calls imperiological means or concepts, you could observe it, which is the pure spirit. So it isn't a theory which says no one could ever observe it unless by no one they meant you know material ones, material beings. Oh, well, hello, everyone. Well, we're close to finishing, so now that I'm alone, I'm going to read some more, and if he doesn't join me soon, then I will end the stream. If he does join me, then I'll just recap him what I've read. In spite of the validity of their distinctions, we may hardly expect that the social behavior of the scientific and philosophical intellect will be more sensitive to the to them in the future than in the past. The new physics will influence the common intellect in the same irrational fashion as classical physics did. Through some sort of associative influence or sub-intellectual introduction, it will probably give birth in its turn to an inchoate philosophy a new scientific tableau of the cosmos, which will save us from the former errors only at the price of illusions of another type. Doubtless, public opinions will be stirred up by a prejudice in favor of contingency and liberty, only by casting doubt on the substantiality of matter and the principle of causality. So, thus ends my notes for uh, the section Dangerous Liaisons, which again, is a somewhat comic name to put on <laughs> a book on epistemology and not a, a pulp novel of some sort. But on to the next section, which I believe is the penultimate. Uh, let me see. Yeah, this section will be ontology and imperiology in the study of the living organism.
Well, actually, instead of moving to a next session, I will stop here because I don't want to to go to a new section if I'm present. And apparently he had to, to unfortunately leave us. So I will leave it here. And I will have to see you all next time. Oh, Ein. Or not. Or Ein, are you there? Alas. Alas, I remain abandoned here, staring at a computer screen of my my useless notes now that I have no partner, or that he is oddly silent. Wow, you can really feel that awkward silence and that dead air, can't you? The freaking cat. Can you hear me now? <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> what what occurred there? Uh, the cat decided to jump into my lap and uh, somehow dislodged my mic, and then it <laughs> didn't want to reconnect. It's, yeah, my my most sincere apologies. <laughs> no problem. I read one note while you were you were away just to fill some dead air. I, I, I appreciate it. <laughs> In spite of the validity of their distinctions, so this is directly continuing after what we've read about the pure spirit, we may hardly expect that the social behavior of the scientific and philosophical intellect will be more sensitive to them in the future than in the past. The new physics will influence the common intellect in the same irrational fashion as classical physics did. Through some sort of associative influence or sub-intellectual induction, it will probably give birth in its turn to an inchoate philosophy, a new scientific tableau of the cosmos, which will save us from the former errors only at the price of illusions of another type. Doubtless, public opinion will be stirred up by a prejudice in favor of contingency and liberty only by casting doubt in the substantiality of matter and the principle of causality. So I have to say, you got that dead on. This is terrifyingly prescient. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that he, one's he's, good. he's writing in the 30s, and like, like, like the 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 um, philosophy of nature that's going to rise from the new science is going to be prejudiced in favor of contingency and liberty by casting doubt on substantiality of matter and principle of causality. That's exactly correct. Yes. To a, I mean, that is it is eerie how prescient it is in my mind. And very, it's almost, it's almost, I guess, the closest he gets to sneering, almost an inco by sub intellectual induction, will give birth to an inchoate philosophy, a new quote unquote scientific tableau of the cosmos. And then public opinion will doubtlessly be stirred up by a prejudice in favor of contingency and liberty, which also says he really understands the public. But I suppose he is a Frenchman, so he understands his people too. <laughs> They yeah. really do like contingency and liberty. Now, I have to give a warning. I have I have noticed no notes on these last few pages because they deal with biology, and I think I got bored. <laughs> so I'm I'm looking over these, and we should we should try and try. So we have about it's this last section on ontology and imperiology uh, in the study of living organisms. Um, we should try it. We've got about 10 pages left in the chapter. It's just this section. I think one more. Um, it's actually, I think, three more. So it's more divided than okay. I think. Okay. Uh, so the two, the two following sections are biology, 
which again, I've read it. I didn't take notes, so I don't know what's important and what's not. But the two sections are ontology and imperiology in the study of living organisms, which I'm not sure he's going to say anything radically different than what you're, what we've heard. He's only going so, to give biological examples. As I recall, and I'm, I'm trying to find, I need, I need to do a better job of highlighting. I need to, I need to get on Bulge's level. The he unfortunately, while he was incredibly prescient with his with with what the the mythologizing of physics was going to do, he has this this optimism about about what's happening in in biology in the thirties. Yes, and, that's the second section called the anti mechanist reaction in biology, which is a very optimist uh, optimistic part of this chapter. Yeah, and and he sees biologists in the day realizing you know rightly that okay we, we can't have this mechanistic or deterministic you know that they're there is something, you know, a, a living creature is different than an inanimate object, um, which the, the physicists of the 30s would probably tell you the opposite. You know, there, there's atoms, they're interacting, they're, they're obeying quantum mechanics, they're obeying relativity. We can, you know, that, that's all life is, is just a certain collection of matter. And the biologists of the day are realizing, okay, that's clearly not right. There is something else. There is some living, there is some spark, there is some animus, there is, there is, uh, there is a soul that is doing something. And Maritain expresses a lot of optimism that the biologists are going to try and, you know, be, because they can't be as mathematized to the same degree the physicists can, are going to are going to find their way out of this. And regrettably, he was dead wrong in biology to become more and more mechanistic and more and more I mean, molecular biology has replaced biology in, in the vast majority of scientific cases because it can be mathematicalized so effectively and because it can be reduced to physics so efficiently. Um, so while he was prescient in physics, he was way, way too optimistic about biology moving in any kind of uh, true philosophy of nature direction. It has just become more, I think he uses the term imperioschematic. Uh, mm -hmm. since it, it can't be imperiometric in the same way because we don't have the same degrees of measurements in biology that we do in, 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 the, in, uh, in physics. But we start making, if anyone's ever taken an organic chemistry class. You know, we have here. Here's all the different molecules you can have, and all the different reaction pathways they can follow. And we have all our pictures that we use to describe things. Since we can't have equations as effectively, but we 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 schematize. That's probably not a word. We make schematics of of the field mm -hmm. instead of looking at what actually is. So I'm I'm sure it'd be much to to Maritain's regret. Is is and you see this in in all aspects of biology. Is is biological investigation has been replaced by statistical measures. You see this in medicine all the time. Is it, okay? What's the, what's the percentage of effect that you see for this thing? What's the number? Like, you know, what percentage of people respond well to this? What number of of the the rabbits die versus live or what? And that it's reducing it to number because that is something that we can work with very effectively because physics works well, numbers and math works well. And again, eliminating the real and replacing it with with statistical quantities has become the direction of biology. Is is very much a statistical science instead of a philosophy of nature. Yes, that summarizes essentially the two, uh, in my mind, at least the two biological sections. And the last part is only uh, two pages and a half, is uh, concerning the true and the false philosophy of the progress of the sciences in modern times. Now, I don't have notes in it, but I can sort of read certain sections. Or uh, do you want to, do you know, do you have a quick summary in your head? Go, go, go ahead and grab something. All right, so. Uh, we believe that a particularly important truth emerges from the critical analysis of the empiriology and the ontology of the sensible to which this chapter has been devoted. To wit, 
that the ever clearer differentiation between knowledge of the ontological type and knowledge of the physical mathematical type is not a simple contingent fact due to a particular to particular historical circumstances, but corresponds to a necessary law of the growth of speculative thought. It constitutes one of the most authentic advances in the order of the morphology of knowledge that thought has accomplished in the course of modern times and of which reflexive and critical philosophy has become aware. We have noted that although the ancients clearly understood the method of Ascensia Medie, which would be the middle sciences, which would be the physical mathematical, uh, in certain privileged fields, nevertheless, they tended, in fact, to submit the whole knowledge of nature to the law of ontological or philosophical knowledge. So they had very little uh, idea of the sensible as uh, just considering the sensible. There is an inverse and symmetrical fault, more serious since it stems not from a de facto lack, but from a de jure error, which consists in admitting as legitimate knowledge, at least in the field of the knowledge of nature, only imperiological knowledge dressed up under some other name. This has been the positivist's error. They have made this knowledge coextensive with the universe of thought. So that's all that you can think about is that sort of scientific um, idea. I, or ideas, I should say. In a quite different fashion, that error is repeated by certain philosophers, this time in the name of metaphysics. Of the scientific knowledge of nature, they retain only imperial metric explanation and hold for naught the sciences of life. They wish to find a mathematical and physical mathematical knowledge of a unique type of all rational activity when it is not purely reflexive, truly worthy of the name. And now point 39, it's important to read his reaction to that. The attitude of these philosophers must be designated as retrograde and to tell the truth, pre-Copernican, which is... An interesting way of putting it. The arbitrary precept of a metaphysics, which is constituted by a total and sweet renunciation of being and object, obliges them to return to the positions of a most naive epistemological monism. Proclaim this time for the benefit of a type of knowledge which is farthest removed from any grasping of the real in itself. This false philosophy of scientific progress is thus prevented from discerning the profound sense of the Copernican Revolution. It fails to understand the admirable organic diversity in the play of the intellect, which has been manifested by four centuries of scientific development, both within science itself and in the distinction of science and philosophy. All that is left of reason in the philosophy is reduced to the mat mathematical use and to what we have here called the empirometric use of the intellect. Here we have, if we may dare so to speak, a rationalism, that dirty word, which he's railed against in other books and in the beginning of this one, retired from business that tries to live like a gentleman of means, but can only maintain itself by drawing on the capital of ancient reason. But we wish to make clear that the principles of a realistic noetic as expounded in the present work, provide a place within the system of knowledge for the methods and claims proper to the reason of this nominalist rationalism, granting their validity in certain defined limits, but noting at the same time that they cannot be the whole of thought. The capacity, now the final paragraph of this chapter, the capacity of a doctrine to integrate whatever is positive in systems which invoke different principles might perhaps be taken as an indication of its truth. In any case, it seems that a true philosophy of the progress of the physical and mathematical sciences in the course of modern times, precisely because it is its duty to set forth by critical reflection the spiritual values with which that progress is pregnant, 
must recognize in it the sign not of a restriction and impoverishment, but of an improvement and growth within the organic structure and differentiation of thought. It must therefore, on the one hand, reveal the essential compatibility of this mathematical and imperial metrical progress with the knowledge of the ontological type which is proper to philosophy. On the other hand, it must respect the nature of these of the experimental sciences, which of themselves escape from complete mathematization, and it must render justice to their working methods, which will extend to ever larger sections of a scientific domain the more they, ass the more they assert their autonomy. In effect, it would be completely arbitrary to refuse to biology and other sciences of the same epistemological type the rank of authentic knowledge. This type of knowledge merits the attention of a philosopher and is playing an ever more important role, perhaps one day preponderant role, in the progress of speculative thought, which is a very optimistic ending to the chapter. And perhaps he will be right in 200 years. One may hope. One may and hope. It's an important thing to draw on here, and I think he makes a good point because we have a, we had a lot of, of mean things to say, I think, and he did as well in this chapter about the new physics and the, and the workings of science. It, it's very clear in his writing and in his mind, and I think it's very true, mm -hmm. that that by um, uh, sort of unbinding itself from philosophy, the imperiometric sciences were able to explode like a, a big part of enlightenment yeah. um uh the the growth of science a couple hundred years ago um happened because it could sort of because of this abstraction because it would leave behind philosophy it didn't easily you know, like the ancients wanted to do they wanted to make everything an ontological knowledge mm -hmm. and one of the one of the great benefits of the of the modern sciences and by modern i mean you know newton and, and forward you know 300 400 years of, of science was that it wasn't trying to do ontology anymore is because if you if you try and do philosophy and be very careful and understand causes you work well but very slowly and the the this new method of this imperiometric method of doing science allowed for a a very the, the rapid rise in 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 uh, I want to say understanding, but understanding is the wrong word because it isn't an understanding. But in this, in the empiricism, in our in our ability to to model and and describe effectively, which has been extremely valuable, you know, untethering itself from philosophy allowed science to explode. But at some point, you need to the philosophy needs to come back in there and reassert itself, and it can never escape completely from ontology. Um, and as he, he says very clearly, there's there's a role for the the for them to be. Um, let, me, let me get the exact thing. Um, Yeah, so talking talking about the 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 right philosophy, it must therefore, on one hand, and you just read this, reveal the essential compatibility of this mathematical and empirometrical progress with the knowledge of the ontological type, which is proper to philosophy. So there there is there is great good to be had in the modern sciences, but they have they have it is it was in being untethered from philosophy that they were able to do that. But we have to realize that they've been untethered from philosophy, and the philosophy yeah, needs needs to come needs to come back for that needs to reassert itself. As he says, they're not a uh, philosophy of nature, and ex the experimental sciences are not complete knowledges in themselves. Yes, they're incomplete, and they need each other. And it is only in this domain, which uh, that uh, there is such a a duality to the order of knowledge. Because in as he says, mathematics is only is only formal. Metaphysics is only spirit. Mm -hmm. 
So with that, we end chapter four and and really reach the end of most of my my previous knowledge of Maritain. So chapter five starts on is on metaphysical knowledge. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to get into these things. I, I, again, I'm, I'm, I wanted to read this book for the discussion of the physical sciences and the philosophy of nature. That's what I wanted. I wanted to get his words on it because I think it's, it's been very interesting to me. And it's informed a lot of my thought. I am very excited to see where he goes from here and what, because again, I think, I think chapter five is the last of the, of the first major section, the first part, the degrees of rational knowledge. Oh yes, which I'm excited for it to end because I think there's going to be a lot of more beautiful purple prose after that, which at this <laughs> point might be, it might be more relaxing <laughs> yes. than to read and have to have digressions into real space. So yeah, but so we have um, metaphysical knowledge is chapter five, and that will conclude part one, which is on um, it's the the degrees of uh, rational knowledge, and then we'll move on to supra rational knowledge. So he'll start getting into mystical experience and Augustinian wisdom and uh, Saint John of the Cross and Christian mysticism, and like you said, I think it's it's going to it's going to get less uh, rigorous and a lot more beautiful because he is certainly capable of both. So I'm, I'm I'm excited for the transition. Yeah, so am I. I'm actually going to see how long this chapter is. Oh, it's uh, oh yeah, okay, it's way shorter than the other one. By way shorter, I mean it's like 45 pages instead of 70. Uh, but it is quite much much shorter. So. Less to go. I'm actually surprised we covered 70 marathon pages in only two recordings. <laughs> we might actually we might get to chapter five in just one recording, and we might try and go ahead and do it in September, dear uh, dear viewers. It's, I think, uh, optimistically, I say we get it done and we we do it before the end of September, but it might be October. We'll see. We might do half of it in September. That's not a bad idea. Maybe we'll 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 try and get That's 20 pages reasonable. in and see how it goes. Well, let, let's see how it how it feels to read. If it's a it, yeah, it might, it it might be light and easy by Maritain standards. Yeah, it is only 45 pages. <laughs> <laughs> it is only 45 Maritain pages, I suppose, instead of 70. Or it might be a chapter where, uh, you know, he repeats himself a lot like he did in the latter sections of uh, this chapter. chapter uh, I four. will uh, flipping through the pages a little bit. So um, one thing in chapter four that we that we didn't have, and I don't know if I missed it or not, was those beautiful Maritain diagrams. Yes, which, we did not. Which, which elucidate nothing and require a full text explanation to make sense of them. Chapter five, I'm already seeing, we have some, we have some oh. diagrams again. Oh, I'm excited for that. Let me see. <laughs> <laughs> Let me scroll. Oh my, I have seen them now. Oh my. Okay. Oh, oh. we're back with the transubjective and stuff. Oh, transubjective okay. intel intelligible, yep. the paranoetic intellection oh, phenomenon. My God. Yeah, I'm gonna have to share my screen later for that one. Okay, I see how it is, Marathon. <laughs> it this, comes to this. It comes to this. All right. Yeah, I'm excited for that to be hit by that train coming in my direction soon. Page yeah, page seven of the chapter. Very excited for that. All right, so uh, Bulge, we'll figure it out offline as we're reading when we want to try and do the next one. But yes, any any closing words, any closing thoughts in the chapter you want to share? Uh, I'm sure I will, as I think Baritan would wish me to do. I am going to reiterate that one should not build a metaphysic metaphysics upon the theoretical conclusions of modern physics, and let that be. If you take one thing away from this chapter, by God, take that, take this. Because Varitan really wanted to get that point across. You will make him incredibly sad if you do not remember this. Please.
please just take this. All right. I think that's a good point to leave it on. <laughs> um, we will see you next time.